Welcome to the CC Report for the 25th of January 2019. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is CC leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Elisa. Good to be back. Yeah, and on today's show, we must act now to avert financial catastrophe. And don't worry about China spying on you. Worry about the five eyes. So firstly, we must act now to avert financial catastrophe. Now, a week ago, we did our show on this topic and we put out a press release, audit the big four banks, pointing to the fact that the big four auditing companies are covering up the real state of our major banks in this country, which is extremely precarious at a time when we're facing a new global financial crisis. So this is extremely uh, critical that this is looked at and we've called for a full audit of the banks to be conducted by the Auditor General, which was standard practice up until 1998 when APRA was um, contracted to oversee this job of auditing the Big Four and the other banks. And at that point, APRA began appointing members of the Big Four accounting firms who dominate some 98% of accounting of the big, world's biggest corporations worldwide, which are Price, Waterhouse, Coopers, Ernst & Young, KPMG and Deloitte. Now, that was one week ago to this day. Today in the media comes an article from the Australian Financial Review citing an ASIC report, which is the Australian Securities and Investment Commission. And this is what the article says. The corporate regulator has fired a warning shot over the big accounting firms and their lucrative consulting businesses, highlighting cases where auditors have compromised the appearance of independence. ASIC has found that one in five audits reviewed lacked the desired assurance that company financial statements were free from material error in its 2017-18 audit inspection program. And it goes on to say, ASIC Commissioner John Price said more needed to be done to improve audit quality over the long term. Uh, the figures cover audits done by the six largest firms, the big four consulting firms, Deloitte, EY, KPMG and PwC, along with mid-tier firms BDO and Grant Thornton. And the report goes on to point out that auditors did not follow accounting standards in their work, which is amazing that they'd be able to get away with that. Uh, that there is growing concern that focus has shifted from the big four accounting firms to more lucrative consultancy work. And we can put up a graphic of that where you can see, um, this is from the AFR, the darker colour of each bar at the top is um, financial year 2014. And as you go down to financial year 2018, you can see the amount of uh, money that they make from actually from their auditing is decreasing across all four firms, which means they're making a greater percentage of their profits from consultancy work. And this is where, uh, what as it calls the appearance of independence is being compromised. And you can go back to last week's CEC report to see a bit more detail on what that means. So basically, look, this has become too blatant to ignore, especially given the campaign we've just launched to bring this to centre stage. Uh, ASIC has been forced to step in here to at least give the appearance that we're on top of this, we're mm. dealing with this. Mm. Yeah, Lisa, and we've um, actually written legislation like we did with the Glass-Steagall Bill that's in, that has you know, about to be reintroduced into the Parliament. Uh, but look, this bill calls for the Auditor-General to be 
to go into the big four banks and to look at the specific areas that we know that there are problems. And this actually drills down into the specific sectors and areas yep. that we have to have an audit look at if we're going to get to the bottom of it, because they could do something that glosses over it. Yep. Um, so what are the aspects that the bill actually covers? Well, there's several different aspects. First of all, it's got to look at the bank's home loan portfolios, because look, the mortgage sector of their business is the biggest, and it's huge, right? So we've got to get a real assessment of the what we call mark-to-market of the housing loans. That is, we've got to look at, are these loans or these values on these houses actually real? Mm. Because otherwise you, you've got this, what we call Potemkin Village of so-called assets, they're not real. Mm. Now, this is a very big deal, and it's why you have to have an independent auditor, like a government-owned auditor, do this process. Then you've got uh, the assumptions of what the banks are putting aside for bad debts, right? Uh, it's, this is money put aside in the case of default on loans from people. These provisions are currently very, very low. Uh, you know, despite what we've seen with the rising mortgage delinquencies, and you know, there's a million people in household stress at the moment, mm. um, and you've got falling housing prices are right around the, the, the country right now, pretty much. And some 400,000 uh, households are in negative equity, mm. right? So that's, that's a huge area there. Yep. Then you come back to the bank's internal um, ratings-based models, which is how they determine their risk-weighting uh, you know, uh, risk for each of the products that they um, uh, set their capital levels with. So all of this is a, it's a fairly complex area, mm. right? but it's very, very important that when they release their uh, financial statements, people can say, well, I know that this has been properly audited by a third party that has no vested interests. Yeah, yep. Right, and the, and the um, final, uh, well, a couple of valid things. First of all, you've got to look at the, the bank's derivative exposures. Now, these things are so complicated that most people throw their hands up and say, oh, we can't deal with this. But look, there's 37.1 trillion dollars of notional capital value of these things on the bank's books now, and they're so sensitive that the Commonwealth Bank, for example, won't even report what their actual percentage of that is anymore. They used to up until the CEC came along, and then all of a sudden they started clamming up as to what was their you know, uh, holding in derivatives. Now they say, oh, that figure doesn't very mean, mean very much because really our risk is much, much less, and then they do uh, actually state a figure on their balance sheet as what they think is their provision for that, that risk or that liability. But it's all smoke and mirrors, mm. and that's why you've got to have an Auditor General go in there and say, look, this is what the reality is, and I think Look, we've had 40 years of deregulation of the yeah. banking system. We've had 40 years of the banks and their buddies in Parliament and the regulators covering up. I think you'll find enormous crimes. They're going to find one hell of a mess. And I wouldn't want to be doing that job. It's either that or the entire system collapses, mm. right? And without our proposals for Glass-Steagall to re-regulate the banking system, mm. that is, separate out the necessary commercial banking system, protect it, protect people's deposits from all this other risky stuff, that's built up in the last 40 years, uh, you know, our system is going to crash. Yeah. It's going to come down. And this, such an audit, and it's, this is where it's critical that you contact your MP to demand such an audit because this will provide the impetus to get the leverage we need to have our members of parliament demand Glass-Steagall and fight for Glass-Steagall separation of the banks, which can separate away all of the gambling activity so that when a new crash hits, the funds of people, of businesses, and the operating of the country, the business operation day-to-day -day activities can continue uninterrupted mm. where the other smoke and mirrors can get and fog wealth can get wiped out. 
Um, so we have in our arsenal right now a suite of bills. We have the Glass-Steagall Bill, which we tabled in Parliament last year. We have our National Bank Bill, a foreclosure moratorium bill and audit bank bill all in draft and close to being finalised, mm -hmm. that we are ready to move to put in this crisis prevention program and that is urgent. Now, we'll take a quick break, but after this we'll come back and we'll talk about um, some of the other factors involved in this reorganisation. Welcome back to the CEC report where we're talking about the urgent steps to avert financial catastrophe. So we've been talking about the necessity to have a proper audit, full audit of the big four banks to, so we know where we are so we can uh, lead into the reorganisation of those banks to withstand a new crisis coming. Um, now of course the Royal Commission um, did a, you know, a good job last year of looking and exposing uh, the tip of the iceberg at least of what's been going on, the fraud that's been going on in the banking system uh, and that's very important but of course this audit is the next vital step and uh, I want to uh, show people the shock waves around the world that this Royal Commission is created. This is just one example and that's an article on the 23rd January in the Times in London by banking editor Catherine Griffiths she reports on the Australian Banking Royal Commission saying the country is braced for the final report and she said any attempt to copy the process of this Royal Commission in the United Kingdom would be very bad news for Britain's banks. Especially, Lisa, when Australia has copied all the regulator models that have come out of the UK. <laughs> exactly. So, They've been dictated from there. Yeah. Um, now, last May, this same banking editor wrote that the Royal Commission had sent shockwaves as far as Britain, and she said that there is concern, quote, the Commission would take things one step further by demanding a breakup of the country's big banks. That would be something for the UK's large lenders to worry about because it is a precedent that could capture the imagination of banking critics the world over. So Glass-Steagall will take root in the UK. And look, it's already there. I mean, the, the Corbyn Labor mm. government has indicated they'll break up the banks. Mm. And it nearly right. passed in 2013 as yeah. well, so there's a precedent already. Um, and with the new crisis coming, the fact that their ring fencing hasn't done anything to change matters, no. um, there's a real impetus for it there. Now, I wanted to mention one other factor of the Australian banks which really uh, shows you the need for this audit, uh, and that is that even the big four banks are kicking back about plans for uh, more bail-in capital be, to be held on their books. But can you just explain to our new viewers what bail-in is well, briefly, Craig? Yeah, bail-in is basically a way of stealing your deposits. End of story. Mm. And look, the, the idea is to shift the liability of deposits to, from the banks uh, and, and get them off their books when they get into trouble. So what happens is they pass, the, the various countries and jurisdictions have passed laws literally to take people's deposits. I and mean, then we saw that first in, in, um, in, in 2013 in Cyprus mm. where you know, bank accounts were literally, they had, anyone who had more than 100,000 euro had their savings stolen. Now here in Australia they did it a much more clever way they started issuing these bail-inable bonds mm. to people, paying up to 8% interest. And people said, oh, this is great, this is great. Mm. And it was, it was marketed to retail, to retail investors, mum and dad investors, uh, as great things. But if you read the fine print, it means if the banks get into trouble, they can quickly convert that into worthless shares. And yep. what's even more important, 
that in the United Kingdom they banned these things from mm. being sold to mum and dad investors. Yeah. So bail-in is effectively a way of stealing your deposit, stealing your money to protect the banks. Yeah. Now, so what the um, what APRA has done, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, they put out a paper on the 8th of November, which is demanding that banks increase the bail-inable capital, which are the various types of bail-in bonds, by a further $75 billion. This is called total loss-absorbing capacity. In the, This is in the lingo of the Bank for International Settlements, which mm -hmm. demands this. So this is being demanded of our banks to bring them up to line with international standards. Uh, which we shouldn't be paying any attention to um, because, as you said, it's just going to steal the people's money to save the banks. Um, so this would make Australian banks, if it goes ahead, the biggest issuers worldwide of this type of bail-in debt, this particular type of bonds called Tier 2 bonds, which are bail-inable in a crisis. And at the same time, New Zealand authorities are demanding we increase the capital we hold there by 15 to 20 billion because, of course, our banks own the New Zealand ones as well. Now, the banks are screaming about this, which shows you they're not in good shape. They're asking APRA to reconsider the plan. They're saying this type of uh, capital is one of the most expensive types to raise and could force up interest rates. Uh, they're saying there's no market for these bonds because probably the suckers are wising up. Uh, Westpac and ANZ actually did bond issues uh, earlier in the month to raise money and they had to issue covered bonds, which are one of the most secure type of bonds backed by pools of loans. And some of them, like ANZ, haven't done that for over a year, but they are doing this because they can't sell the lower ranking types of bonds. So part of this is because you've got rising funding costs across the board. Um, US rates, of course, are rising and there's various warnings of a banking crisis and credit crunch, such as uh, from JCP Investment Partners, who have said that with negative asymmetric risk around a credit crunch and therefore capital risk, the environment for the Australian banking sector seems at best very challenging. Now, instead of all these TLAC buffers and so forth and crisis management, instead we need uh, the Glass-Steagall separation. That simplifies it. It's very simple. Separate out the necess necessary banking system, right? Protect it by shielding it from all these you know, invest investment merchant banking speculative stuff. We need a national bank to come in and control the private banking system to regulate it. We've got written on legislation for this and it's ready to go. Mm. Um, so that's the, that's the solution here, Lisa. Yep, so ring your MP about it. Now, we'll be back very shortly to change the subject and talk about who you should be more worried about, China or the Five Eyes intelligence agencies. Welcome back to the CEC Report. Don't worry about China spying on you, worry about the Five Eyes. Now, of course, the Five Eyes is the US, UK, Canada, Australia and New Zealand uh, Spying and Intelligence Alliance, which we're going to talk about today. And I want to preface it by saying that um, people are going to say, as they always do in the comments, that you're defending China. Why are you defending China? Well, we're not defending China. We're defending the prospect to have collaboration worldwide for peace and economic security. And what China has happened to have hit upon are a number of economic policies that not only have been effective in growing their economy and getting people out of poverty, which is what we all want, right, but which happen to be anathema to the City of London Wall Street banking apparatus, which the last two segments, everything we talked about, is coming 
directly from them. So this is the alternative. You have policies in China of Glass-Steagall banking separation. You have national credit, which they issue uh, to get the economy moving into special projects, infrastructure. You have a high technology, fast developing economy that uplifts the masses. So don't gloss over that. This is a crucial thing. There's other issues. There's a myriad of other issues. But distill it to this crucial factor, which is what is driving the propaganda campaign against China. So the real question is, Lisa, are, our, are the people that are criticising us and saying, oh, we're supporting China, do they realise that they're actually being duped by an intelligence hmm. operation? Well, not. I mean, they don't, I don't think. <laughs> I don't think so either. And they need to think about it. Various people have come out, authorities that we've quoted on this show have come out and said that China policy in Australia is run by the intelligence agencies. Yeah, exactly. That's and that's what people have to realise is don't believe what you're being told in the media yep. and do your own thinking. Now, you, go ahead. call yeah. in for a copy of this week's Australian Alert Service. There's an article that I wrote in there which covers what I'm about to go through and I don't have time to do it justice. Um, but basically, as you said, intelligence agencies are a key factor right now in this propaganda drive. And the Five Eyes has had a vendetta against China, which not only we are describing. Reuters had an article in October last year talking about the fact that secret meetings were being held under the radar between Five Eyes and other interlocutors to expand a broadening international front against China. The AFR on the 13th of December described meetings in Canada that happened in July um, between the Five Eyes and other collaborators to open attacks against Huawei, the Chinese telecom firm. And afterwards they described a series of speeches by the heads of the intelligence agencies in the Five Eyes countries who very rarely give public speeches um, rallying against China. And this preceded, of course, the arrest of the head of Huawei in Canada, or the CFO of that firm and a series of bans or bans in progress of Huawei technology into 5G networks, which has been a coordinated campaign also across the globe. You've also had the Five Eyes Summit, which took, part, took place last August here in Australia on the Gold Coast, which talked about the Five Eyes setting up a transnational model of security under Five Eyes, which means don't worry about sovereignty of nations, don't worry about borders, we're going to have a global blanket across the globe, a global police state. Um, you know, there's no way China has, has any capability to do something similar to that, so that's a greater threat. You had the Chogham meeting, the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in April last year, which talked about expanding the Five Eyes network to include all of the Commonwealth, so they have an even greater circle of coordination. This and is like reinvigorating the old British Empire. Oh, it? it exactly is, and there's articles that we had in last week's alert service about exactly that topic, because with Brexit, uh, Britain has come up with this new plan called Global Britain mm -hmm. to reinvigorate all the old colonial networks to extend their influence. The and they talk openly about extending their influence, unlike yes. China. This is the old British Empire in a new form. Mm, that's right. The same model, yeah, the, the intelligence, same tricks, the same intentions. Because we're in a cyber high-tech world now, yep. so they have to change and adapt. Yep. Now, the Foreign Investment Review Board here in Australia, um, the Australian Financial Review had an article reporting that they're quoting from a source saying that the FIRB believes that there's no such thing as a private company anymore in China. And what this changes is the level of scrutiny that is required for private Chinese companies to invest in uh, Australia and that the level which invoked security 
checks had been raised mm. under the free trade agreement with China in, on par with other countries. But now what this source is effectively saying is that uh, all companies will be treated as if they were agents of the Chinese state, which means they will lower that level again for scrutinising foreign investment. Now, we're opposed to a foreign takeover of Australia. Don't get us wrong again, and we'll put up a graphic here which shows, because all we're concerned about is are they giving the same level of scrutiny to the other countries, or is this just an anti-China thing? And you'll see in this graphic the US, UK, Belgium, Japan, Singapore and Hong Kong all have a greater level of foreign investment into Australia. So it's all well and good to scrutinise China and their investment more, but let's do it to the rest as well. And the head of the FIRB, David Irvine, who by the way denies this charge that came from the AFR, but the F he would. FIRB is a Foreign Investment Review Board. Yep. So that's, that's the board that looks over all the yeah. potential investments into Australia. So yeah. he, he's the former head though of ASIO and ASIS. Um, and other sources in you know, that have been quoted on this subject say that effectively they're already scrutinising all Chinese investment this way mm -hmm. anyway, so he can deny it all he likes. Now, what they cite is as a basis for this, you know, all Chinese companies are run by the state, is China's national intelligence law, which says that an organisation or citizen shall support, assist in and cooperate in national intelligence work in accordance with the law and keep confidential the national intelligence work that it or he knows. This is nowhere near as bad as our own encryption law passed in Australia last December based on the British Snoopers Charter, which is even worse, um, which makes the Chinese law look lax. This encryption law can compel any citizen or company to act on their behalf to hack into um, some facility or computer, to re-engineer apps without your knowledge so that they can spy on you, um, to get you to open a mobile phone with your code or someone else's. The order to do so is kept secret. The penalty to, for disclosing that order is five years imprisonment. If you refuse to comply with the order, you can get five to ten years in prison. Right, this is wild. And the Chinese ambassador to Canada in fact, um, his name's Lou Shai. He wrote in Ottawa's Hill Times recently in response to all this that when making laws for national security and intelligence, China has drawn references from the relevant laws of the US, Canada and other Western countries. So when you do it, you call it national security. When we do it, it's called espionage. So he just pointed out the rank hypocrisy afoot here and pointing to other programs like PRISM and Echelon and so forth. And talking about those programs, remember when Edward Snowden exposed all the NSA spying in 2013? One of the things he showed is extensive spying by the NSA on Huawei back then. Now, there's no evidence of Huawei itself running espionage, but these documents uh, showed that the NSA accessed um, not only basic information, but even the source codes of Huawei products. Um, so this raises even questions of intellectual property theft. Who's doing the thieving here? Because Huawei, for instance, is way ahead in 5G technology. You know, probably can provide products nine months earlier for less than half the price. Um, one of these NSA documents said, Many of our targets communicate over Huawei-produced products. We want to make sure that we know how to exploit these products. So they admitted it was for advancing US spying capabilities. Yep. So this is wild. I think, Alicia, the depth of this is really covered well in your feature article, where you've done a lot of work on this. People should call in for a copy of this and really understand you're being duped by these intelligence agencies 
find out they how. They want to prevent the cooperation that we need as their global financial system comes down. So they're That's trying right. to put us at loggerheads with potential partners and that's the real issue afoot here. Absolutely. Now, unfortunately, though, we've run out of time to discuss it, but we'll talk about it more in further weeks. Yep. Thanks for joining me, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Elisa. Thanks for tuning in and join us next week. Mm -hmm.